All of the uh, scripture readings this morning are in connection with Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the second petition, Your Kingdom Come. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. 
The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. 
so far from Daniel. Uh, We'll also turn to the short prophecy of Micah, Micah chapter 4. Micah 4, we'll read verses 1 through 8. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So far from Micah. And then finally we'll turn to the New Testament, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Verses 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him so far. Uh, Every Sunday, ordinarily in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of the Christian faith and confession adopted by this church. Uh, We've, uh, or I I took the initiative to move the uh, Lord's Supper or the uh, uh, Lord's Day service to the, the morning. Uh, so that we could uh, conclude Ecclesiastes in the afternoon. And so this morning, then, we'll turn to Lord's Day 48. It's on page 561 of our books of praise. There, the question is, what is the second petition? Your kingdom come, that is, 
So rule us by Your Word and Spirit that more and more we submit to You. Preserve and increase Your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against You, and every conspiracy against Your Holy Word. Do all this until the fullness of Your kingdom comes, wherein You shall be all in all. So far, the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we return now to our study of the Lord's Prayer, we want to keep in mind the reason for which we embarked on this journey through the Lord's Prayer in the first place. And the reason is this, as we saw several weeks ago, we recognize prayer is our lifeline. It's our lifeline to God Himself. The most basic way in which we we reach out to Him and He in turn equips us with His Spirit. Uh, Prayer is a means by which we also align our hearts with God's will. Uh, We have our desires and we bring our desires into line with God's concerns. And we see this, we saw this before in the life of the Lord Jesus. How often He would go to be by Himself away from the crowds, off in the mountains or elsewhere, to pray all alone. The disciples observed this as well, and uh, at one point they asked Him, Lord, would You teach us to pray? And that, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, that precipitates the Lord Jesus' teaching on uh, the Lord's Prayer. Well, with that in mind then, uh, last week we looked at the first petition, Hallowed Be Your Name, or two weeks ago, uh, and we saw that uh, this first part of the, the prayer sets the tone for the whole of the Lord's Prayer. It brings our hearts and minds into, into line with what matters to God the most. God's concern for His own name, His own glory, uh, is first, and it should be first in our prayers as well. Well, now we come to the second petition. And, and the first question we want to ask when we look at this petition, your kingdom come, uh, is what is actually meant by this petition? What is it that Christ is teaching us to pray for when we pray for His kingdom to come? Well, one way this petition is often misunderstood uh, is we, we think of it as simply another way of asking for Jesus to return and then having returned to then establish His kingdom. Now, it's not without reason that we think this. Jesus Himself often speaks of the final age, the final end of history, as the kingdom of God. Uh, For example, in the Lord's Supper, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, says to His disciples, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom, referring to the end of, of the age. And so we assume that then the kingdom refers to the the final age, uh, and we assume then that this prayer is just a prayer for that age to come sooner. But that's not actually primarily what this prayer is about. Uh, The kingdom of God is much bigger than just the end of the age. It's a bigger concept in Scripture. Uh, The the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus said elsewhere, the kingdom of God is right here with you in your midst. It's here already. Uh, Again, elsewhere, the the Lord Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come. And so we recognize there's a sense in which the kingdom of God has already come, and there's a sense in which it is still coming. Well, then what is it? What is this kingdom of God? What is it we are talking about? Well, we all know what a a kingdom is. We we talked about this recently in in catechism class as well, as some of uh, the students may remember. Uh, A kingdom... 
a territory or an area, a dominion over which a king rules. Well, then what is the kingdom of God? It is, it is the rule and reign of God Himself. The rule and reign of God over the hearts and lives of mankind. In other words, the kingdom of God exists wherever God rules in the hearts and lives of people, wherever men and women and children love, serve, and honor and obey the king himself, that is God. That's the kingdom of God. And that's what we're praying for when we pray, your kingdom come. And and what we want to recognize when we hear the Lord's Prayer, we want to set it against the backdrop of the whole of the Old Testament and recognize this is really what the whole of the Old Testament was waiting for and anticipating. And the story of Scripture and the story of humanity is a war between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Uh, the kingdom of, uh, in, the, in the kingdom of God, God set Adam and Eve in, in the garden. Uh, and there, in its infant form, you have the kingdom of God. You have one man, one woman, obeying, loving, serving, honoring the Lord Himself. Uh, Jesus, or, or God, God even uses kingly language when He sets them there in the garden. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the earth, ruling as, as vice-regents under God Himself. But when Adam and Eve fell into sin, there were introduced to another kingdom, which Scripture calls the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness. Uh, in a very real sense, though of course God remains sovereign, in a very real sense, Satan becomes, at that point, the ruler of this world. Uh, now, again, it's true, God remains sovereign over all things. Nothing happens outside of God's control. But when you're, when you're talking about human lives, human hearts, are people obeying, loving, serving God, the Bible teaches the world has fallen under the rule and reign of Satan. The Apostle John, for example, writes in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 2, uh, talks about Satan as the prince of the power of the air. Or again in Colossians 1, 13, uh, uh, he says about us as believers, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So you see, two kingdoms at war, and this is the story of Scripture, the story of uh, human history. And you only need a glance to the history of of the Old Testament to see what an ugly kingdom, what a terrible kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Satan is. It is darkness and horror all the way through. You read of parents burning their children as a sacrifice to the gods. You read of murder, selfishness, rape, hatred, and every kind of perversion and evil. This is the kingdom of Satan. And we recognize, of course, this kingdom still exists in our world today. Much of our world still exists under the rule of Satan. And and where Satan rules, there is darkness, brokenness, hatred. Every now and then that that darkness brims over in particularly horrific events. You think of the Holocaust in in World War II or the killing fields of Cambodia or or, or of Rwanda. And you see it manifested in our own culture as well. Uh, Hostility between different races. Uh, sexual sin and abuse, neglect and abuse of children, neglect and abuse of 
the elderly, the murder of infants in the womb. You see the kingdom of darkness living right here in our own country as well. And scripture says that by nature uh, we are foolish, disobedient, led astray by various passions, uh, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Well, this is what Scripture then calls the kingdom of man or the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness. Uh, and the story of, of the Bible is a story of God's grace, God's redeeming grace, calling people out of that kingdom, out of their darkness and slavery, calling them uh, out of the world, uh, forgiving their sins, uh, and then through them laying the groundwork for His kingdom. So that was God's promise to Abraham. When God called Abraham out of Ur, He said, I will make of you a great nation, and through you I will bless all the nations of, uh, of the earth, all the families of, of the earth. The story of Scripture is the story of God's redemption, uh, establishing His kingdom over against the kingdom of this world. Now, in our reading from Daniel, we get a sense of, of this, the scale of this kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar has a, a dream of this, this great statue uh, which represents his kingdom uh, and, and, and then uh, three powerful empires to come after him. And as he gazes at this, this terrifying image, he then sees a stone cut by no human hand uh, that comes and it demolishes the entire statue, so, so crushing it that it becomes chaff that blows away in, in the wind. And then that stone goes on to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. Well, Daniel, uh, as he interprets the dream, uh, shows Nebuchadnezzar this is a dream about the kingdom of God. You have your kingdom, and other kingdoms will come after you, but the kingdom of God will come and will demolish all of these. Now, a few things that we want to learn from that chapter. In the first place, we learn, that, uh, we learn something about when the kingdom comes. There's a, there's a timeline, timeline, isn't there, in that vision. It's during the days of that last great empire. So after Babylon, you have Persia, then Greece, and then Rome, which is when the Lord Jesus came. Uh, so from our perspective, looking back, uh, we can say the kingdom of God has come. It came in the days of that last empire uh, with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, we want to observe from that dream the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom that's cut out by no human hand. In other words, it's a work of God. It's not started by some earthly warlord, the way that, Ab uh, the, the way that Babylon and, and Persia and Greece and Rome were. It is a work of God. Thirdly as well, notice how the kingdom comes. It starts small, doesn't it? It's a, it starts as a stone cut out by no human hand, that grows to become a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's not all at once. And finally, consider the, the impact of, of the kingdom of God on the world. Even though it is a, a divine work, it's not run by warlords, it's not run by earthly kings, uh, it's not a human work, and yet it radically transforms this world. It shatters the old earthly empires such that they become like chaff blown away on the wind and the kingdom of God then comes and takes their place. 
Well, this vision that's recorded in Daniel 2 uh, had, a, had a, a formative impact on the Jews in the intervening time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of, of the New. Uh, the Jews knew they were living in the days of this last kingdom. They knew that this was when the kingdom of God was going to come. Uh, this is why we find God-fearing Jews in, uh, in the Gospels who are described as uh, Jews who are waiting for the kingdom of God. They knew this is the time when it's supposed to come. Now we also read from Micah 4, and there's, there's some things we can learn from that vision as well. It's another vision of the kingdom of God uh, given through the prophet Micah. You find it as well in, in, the, gospel, or in the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, and here you have a vision of the mountain of the house of the Lord being, being raised up, established as the highest of, of the mountains. And you have nations and peoples streaming to the mountain of, of God. Uh, correspondingly, as, as there's a flowing in, there's also a flowing out. Uh, the word of God going out from Jerusalem out to the world. Uh, and again, just like in Daniel, you see the kingdom of God having a transformative effect on the world. Uh, in this case, though, the world, the kingdoms of the world are not shattered, but they are transformed. They become the kingdom of God. They're, they're shattered in the sense that they cease to be what they were, but they become something new. Uh, no longer, it says, will nation lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore, but the word of God will judge between them and settle their disputes. So a couple of things we can learn from this, this prophecy as well. In the first place, just like in Daniel, the kingdom of God is again not a military movement. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a work of God. The word of God goes out and the nations are gathered in and are transformed. And just as in Daniel here too, the kingdom of God radically changes the world order, brings an end to an old order, and ushers in anew. But again, its power doesn't come from military strength, but the work of the, of the Word of God changing perspectives, changing human hearts and lives. And thirdly, we want to notice it, it's, says to be, it's said to begin in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and the Jewish people living there would be privileged to see the outbreak of the kingdom of God. Well, then with all of that, that expectation, uh, and this is, this is the expectation the Jews have as we come into the New Testament, uh, with all of that in mind, we can hopefully better understand then what the Lord Jesus meant when He taught His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. And many of the Jews of Jesus' day had missed the point altogether. They were expecting some sort of military overthrow. That's why the Lord Jesus had to spend much of his ministry showing them that that's not what uh, the Old Testament uh, teaches us to expect. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. And he shows them it's about sinners turning from their sin. It's about healing. It's about redemption, uh, forgiving uh, the sinner, bringing people from enmity to God to, uh, to, to reconciliation with God. Uh, over the course of the gospel, then, uh, we start to understand this is what the kingdom is really all about. Why, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, uh, when he was asked by Pilate whether he was the king of, of the Jews, Jesus explains to him, my kingdom is not from or of this world. Now, when Jesus says that, he doesn't mean my kingdom won't be seen in this world. It's not what he's saying. Uh, Jesus' point is, it's not of this world. Just like we saw in Daniel and in Micah, 
the kingdom of God does not derive its power or strength from this world the way that the kingdoms of the world do. It's not going to come, will never come, through violent uprising or military overthrow, but through the transformation of hearts uh, as a result of being reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, then we come to the Lord's Prayer. What is Jesus then teaching us to pray for when he says, uh, pray your kingdom come? We can see it's not just a prayer for the end of the age. It's not just a prayer for Jesus to return. On the contrary, it's a prayer for today. It's a prayer for this world that we live in, that we witness uh, all around us. It's a prayer that God would bring this world to the knowledge of Christ so that people in this world would surrender their own kingdoms uh, along with all of the violence and greed and selfishness uh, and evil by which we've sought to uphold our own little kingdoms and instead would find forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace with God through Christ and be brought under His perfect rule. When Christ rose uh, and and before He ascended uh, into heaven, He told His disciples, Now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Does that sound like kingdom language? Jesus is king. All authority has been given to Him. And His command is, make disciples and teach them to obey what I have commanded. That's what we're praying for in this petition. We're praying for God to establish His rule, His reign, beginning in our hearts and in the hearts of then people everywhere to change lives, to reconcile people to Himself to build the church, make disciples of all nations, to spread the gospel, and then through the gospel, to bring people to obedience to the word and will of God, to dissipate the darkness that still exists in our world where Satan still reigns, to bring an end to slavery and warfare and abuse and every kind of evil in this world, and to do that uh, through the gospel. It is only the gospel that has the power to bring an end to those forms of evil. And see, too, too easily and too often, we look out at this world, and we see the kingdom of Satan. We see it clearly enough. And we despair because of what we see. We see things getting worse and worse. And so we throw up our hands and, and we just pray, would Jesus come back sooner? We pray for an end to this age. And all too often, that's how we interpret this petition as well. But notice, see how this petition is full of hope. It's brimming over with hope. Hope that's rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit at at Pentecost. And that's how the Catechism uh, also then uh, interprets the, the petition for us. What is the second petition? It says, Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit. See how it starts right here at home. Uh, so that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil and every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. And do all this until, that is before, until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. See, we're not taught to despair. We're not taught to uh, conclude that, that this world is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, we're taught to pray and to labor for the transformation of this world by the preaching of the gospel. It's the preaching of the gospel accompanied by the power of the Spirit uh, that has the power 
that has the power to bring real transformation and change to this world, to hearts, to lives, to homes, to communities, and even to countries. And that's what we're taught to pray for. It's what the the disciples were taught to work for. Go and make disciples of all nations. And it's what Christ promises He will do. In Matthew 16, He says, I will build My church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades, uh, try and uh, get the picture uh, in our heads, the gates of Hades, you uh, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, you, you see the, the, the big old gates of, of Mordor, uh, that sort of image, the gates of Hades. But understand the picture. It's not the gates of heaven withstanding the onslaught of Hades. It's the gates of Hades crumbling before the kingdom of heaven. It's Christ and we with Him who are on the offensive there at the gates of hell uh, about to break those gates down. It's the church that's armed with the battering ram of the Gospel saying, we're getting through those gates and that kingdom is not going to withstand. The gates will crumble uh, just as Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, that image being shattered by the kingdom uh, of God. Every time missionaries go out and proclaim the gospel, they are ramming against the, hate, uh, the, the gates of, of Hades. Every time sinners in our own country are confronted by the truth and power of the gospel and surrender their lives to Christ, the gates are crumbling a little bit more. Every time we ourselves turn from sin, turn back to God in repentance, there Satan's stronghold in our own hearts crumbles and and Jesus Christ becomes more and more the king of our hearts. Every time we help a straying brother or sister uh, return to the church and return to the Lord, there the gates of Hades crumble yet more. Every time indeed a Christian parent, father or mother, uh, raises a son or daughter who who loves and fears the Lord, uh, there again it's another crash against the gates of Hades. And Christ promises those gates are not going to withstand the onslaught of my kingdom and my church. As we pray this petition, we pray it with the recognition, we're not there yet. And we're not there yet. Though we can give thanks for all that we have seen, even in history, of the kingdom of God advancing uh, in the hearts and lives of many people, changing nations, changing uh, communities throughout this world, and still the church growing today, yet we recognize there's still a lot of darkness out there. There's still a lot of misery. There's still a lot of slavery to the kingdom of Satan. There's many places in the world where the gospel has not yet broken in, uh, where Satan still holds on to his rule. And us too, in our own corner of the world, uh, we, we sometimes even see advances that Satan seems to make against the kingdom of God. As in any war, any battle, that sort of thing happens. Uh, but we trust that Christ is still with us. The kingdom of God is not going to be demolished. Uh, it will advance here uh, through the power of the gospel as Christ has promised. And we recognize too, the kingdom of Satan is not just out there. It's not just out in the world. It, it, it's also right here. There's sin in our midst. There's sin in our hearts that still needs dealing with. Areas in our own lives that still need to bow before the rule and reign of Christ. That's why the Catechism teaches us when we pray this petition, start with ourselves. Uh, when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, uh, that, that prayer begins with, so rule us by your word and spirit that we would submit to you. And of course, if we're, we're praying this sincerely, we're praying for God to rule us by His Word, 
and by His Spirit, uh, then we're also going to be using those very means that He's given us, His Word, uh, and praying in the Spirit. And we also know as the kingdom of, of, of darkness, as the kingdom of Satan crumbles, Satan will be growing all the more violent. Satan hates losing his territory. Even though he's powerless to stop it, he will do everything he can to stop the advance of the kingdom of God. We recognize that Satan and his demons are still powerful forces that we wage our war against by the Spirit. The coming of Christ's kingdom is not just this this smooth, gentle ride into a better and better world. We recognize we're called to the frontiers. We're called to the very places where Satan uh, has dominion. And there we are called to do battle. And that battle will get violent uh, as we wage war against that kingdom. We need the help and the empowerment of the Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if we're taking this petition seriously, we're also recognizing uh, how badly we need the Spirit's help. We're not going to win this battle against Satan, even in the, 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 the jurisdiction of our own hearts and lives, unless we are filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to wage that war. Christ is calling you to the front lines of the battle, and you need to be armed when you get there. And we also know that the way in which we engage in this battle is going to look very different from the world around us, uh, from the way in which other kingdoms expand their rule and power. And we call, uh, we're, we're called to follow our Lord Jesus, the King of our kingdom, by laying our lives down as He Himself did. The, the kingdom of God doesn't come by self-exaltation, but by our humiliation in obedience to God's will. And victory is a strange thing in, in Christ's kingdom. It's what the church father Tertullian once said uh, to those who were persecuting the church in his day. He said, we multiply when you reap us, and the blood of Christians is seed. The greatest victories come not when we exalt ourselves, but when we take up our cross and follow Christ. When we endure suffering with joyful hearts. When we lay ourselves and our kingdoms down, there in the ruins of those kingdoms, Christ builds his kingdom. And that's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper as well. We're gathering, leaving our own kingdoms behind so that we can gather around Christ's table. We recognize it's His table. He is the host. And He invites us. But when we come, we leave ourselves, our old kingdoms, behind. We come as those who who have left something evil behind because we have found something far better in the kingdom of Christ. We come to enjoy fellowship with the one who's called us from, from darkness to light, uh, who's called us to be a redeemed people out of this world. And as we partake, then we also recognize we're being called by Christ as we take of his body and his blood. We're being called to do the same as he did, to lay our lives down, uh, to lay our lives down for one another in love and to lay our lives down in this world as we wait and work for the kingdom of God. Amen.